This is episode three of the ABA MPT podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome one of my favorite people on the planet to the podcast, Dr. Kimberly Nix-Berens. Dr. Kim, as her students affectionately call her, is a scientist educator and founder of Fit Learning. Most recently, she published her first book, Blind Spots, Why Students Fail and the Science That Can Save Them. In this episode, she tells her story of how she found her way to behaviour science and precision teaching, her encounters with mentors that took her on a journey that has led her to develop an instructional model incorporating precision teaching, direct instruction and curriculum-based measurement that has resulted in impactful discoveries about how to rapidly accelerate complex human behaviour, and of her vision for automation of data to allow collection of data in classrooms. She tells the story of why she no longer talks about ABA and her communications, but about science, as well as her hopes for those up-and-coming students in the field. Dr. Kim's work can be found at www.drkimberlybarons.com and references are provided in the show notes. Let's go. Well, I am so excited today because one of my life heroes is sitting across from a screen um, someone that I met back in 2014 that uh, profoundly changed the trajectory of my life and really helped me find my way into precision teaching. I had heard her online when I was studying FIT, but then I had the great pleasure of sitting next to Dr. Kendra Newsom. I told her my journey about my daughter and others that I'd worked with, and she said, you know what, you better find Dr. Kim. And I just remember running through <laughs> IPTC conference, waving my arms in the air going, where's Dr. And to your absolute credit, even though you'd just gotten off the stage having done a major presentation, I shared my journey with you and you, you said these impactful and powerful words to me and you said, I know your journey. And you, you really did. And anyway, from that moment forward, I got very interested in precision teaching and the power of the chart and uh, I begged to join Fit Learning and somehow you said yes. And that was in 2014 and, and, yeah, now I have three labs in Perth and I couldn't be more proud to be part of the Fit Learning Network. And I'm so happy to have you here today. I have labelled this episode the state of play in the ABA because I know this is one of your uh, areas of passion to talk about, the underpinnings of behavioural science. But I really want to start by asking you a little bit about your early childhood and your upbringing that you know, started the journey of someone who I know to have an extraordinary work ethic and um, who has done a profound amount of things in a comparatively short time. And I would love to know how that all started for you. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Mandy, for all those amazing acknowledgements. And I will tell you that, you know, working with you has been just a highlight of my entire career. So it's really my privilege. (laughs) I'll tell you that. So my uh, early upbringing, so, you know, my parents were both in in fields of science. Um, My, my mother um, had, you know, was trained as as a biologist and and she ran a laboratory in a big children's hospital. And then my father was actually a psychiatrist. And so I mean, I guess I should say trained in a field of science loosely when I talk about my dad. (laughs) I mean, I know. Most people would think of that, right, as a science outside of our It's field. so funny because he was, you know, just a brilliant, I mean, he was really, his primary, um, he excelled in physics, which is interesting to me, and then obviously chemistry and biology, but then after medical school, you know, he specialized in psychiatry, and, and somehow his, you know, hard science really shifted and became 
Not that, <laughs> not that he didn't do some profound things. I mean, my dad was really one of the pioneers in post-traumatic stress disorder, worked in um, Subic Bay, Philippines during the Vietnam War and uh, was on the front lines treating soldiers. And, you know, obviously he was treating a lot of them for injuries, physical injuries, but he, that was really his first experience with, with trauma. Um, and it was not even a diagnosable thing and, you know, it wasn't even acknowledged. So he, he was a pioneer in post-traumatic stress. And then he actually, once he was back in the States, he, he really devoted his life to victims of HIV and AIDS, which is also a very, it was, he found it to be a very similar experience of trauma. So he was a wonderful human being and I shouldn't throw him under the bus for being a psychiatrist, but it was definitely, a, you know, it wasn't exactly, you know, his, his view of human behavior and the causes of it you know, we're, we're very different than the view in behavioral science. I will say that. Did you have those types of conversations? Oh, with you know, it's so funny because obviously as a kid, I had no distinction. And yeah. so my, you know, my dad was highly Freudian, you know, he was very, he was a Freudian psychotherapist. And yeah. so he was very much into, you know, the inner homunculus, um, you know, the internal conflicts and those things actually being real, that being the source of treatment was, was somehow going in there and fixing those internal conflicts. I will say, even as a young child, not a young child, I would say like an adolescent or teenager, I, I always questioned it. It always seemed like his, his patients, and I hate to say this, never finished. Like I, I knew he had patients for like 30, right. 40 years, the same patients. And I always wondered, I'm like, is this just something that you always have to do is go to therapy? Like, isn't, is there no beginning and end? You know, I, I always thought about it, like with respect to other medical treatments. Like you go in, you, you get your medical treatment and then you're, you're healed and you're done. Right. But that didn't seem to be the case with the majority yeah. of my dad's. Yeah. No, with the yeah, brain, my dad's patients. And so I always found that to be weird. And it, but it wasn't until I got to Rollins college that I, I had the opportunity to really be introduced to behavioral science as a perspective on human behavior and the causes of it. So what you had though, were two yeah. parents that modeled I guess, high work yeah. ethic, high standards of education. Yes. And what was the household like in terms right. of, you know, expectations around homework and things like that? What was it like? Well, I mean, my childhood was definitely interesting because my father came out as, as gay when I was five. Mm. So, yes, and actually, to be quite honest, my father was a victim of bigotry and in the medical establishment because, you know, he, he had had urges since he was young. I, you know, I grew up in Georgia. So this was number one, the South. Um, and number two, this yeah. was in the fifties. And, you know, when my dad first started experiencing this. And so when he was in college, he actually found a, his own psychiatrist and kind of revealed he was having these kind of urges. And the psychiatrist told him that the treatment for this was to get married and have children. And that marriage. Thank God he did tell him that. Because we would right. Have him. But I will say it was very, it was I mean, <laughs> fascinating to me that, you know, my dad, my dad. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, he loved my mother, obviously, and they were very good friends. And obviously by the time I was five, he really, you know, understood that this was, yeah. he couldn't, you know, live a lie anymore. So he left. Um, and, and, and of course, uh, the law was not on his side because of discrimination of so many sorts. So he really barely had visitation. I mean, we got to see him every other weekend and he was able to take us to dinner once every two weeks during the weekday. So he really had very limited visitation of us, which is really pretty heartbreaking when I think about it now. 
And it also put so much on my mother. So she was, a, you know, she was basically a single working mom uh, and, and she, you know, had a pretty big job. So she had, she ran her household in a way that created order because she had to get a million things done in a very small amount of time by herself. And, you know, she wasn't rolling in money, unfortunately. So she didn't have a housekeeper and a yard person. And like, so that was us. So we were, you know, my sister and me and my mother, we were a team. So I grew up just without, it just was a way of life that I, I had a, a lot of things I was responsible for mowing the grass, you know, cleaning the entire house, doing my own laundry, you know, helping get dinner ready at night because she couldn't get home from work in time. She had to leave for work at five 30 in the morning. So even as a wow. little kid, I remember getting up and my sister and I making our own breakfast, getting fully ready for school and walking to the bus stop by ourselves. And this was an elementary school. So it's a very different time. You know, I, we, yeah. my sister and I were on our own quite a bit and the expectations in the household were that we never even questioned that we were responsible for a lot of things at a very young age. It's just what we did. And of course, my mother watching my mom do what she did with such unbelievable precision and efficiency and warmth and love, you know, we all, the, the last thing I ever wanted to do was disappoint my mother. <laughs> she was like, you know, everything to me uh, and my sister. And so we did everything we could to like have mom not, not be more stressed than she already was or disappointed in us or, and occasionally when I, when I actually, when I did do that, like, you know, you always say that uh, Helen Keller's, you know, Annie Sullivan was the first real applied behavior analyst out there. Actually, I also think yeah, my mother, yeah. my mother was one without <laughs> knowing it either. Like she just, it was common sense. Yeah. Right. Like she used, she used unbelievably yeah. effective using- reinforcement contingencies and extinction. Yeah. You know, she was very good at ignoring tantrums and she was very good at with no comment. Like if I left a wet, she had bought me this brand new beds, you know, bedroom setup. She had, and it was, again, she didn't have a lot of money. So that was like a big privilege. And I left a, a dirty, wet towel on my bed, on my new comforter. And I literally come home from school and my entire bedroom is like barren and it's all up in the attic. Like my bedspread is in the attic, all my new stuff, my throw pillows, all my fun stuff that she had let me get all in the attic. And I had to earn it. I had to earn it yeah. back by doing chores, doing yeah. all my responsibilities in the household that she had done the math that it were equal to what she spent on the, on the stuff she bought for me. So like I had to earn Jesus. it back and it was, um, it was amazing. Yeah. And then the, it, but the thing is, if I left any wet towels anywhere on the floor of the bed, that stuff was gone. So it actually only took one time and I never wow. did it again. I was, was going to ask, I bet it didn't happen again. <laughs> I was well well trained in doing, you know, being very effective and efficient and and independent. independent. Yes. How did you choose the field that you decided to? Well, I was always, you know, it's so interesting because I was always interested in science, obviously, you know, that was a big part of my childhood. You know, even though my dad leaned, you know, somehow that all went out the window for him when he was dealing with human behavior, science was still a huge part of, of our conversations as a kid and and with my mother as well. And, you know, so they were, they were, but they were pragmatists, you know, even though my father wasn't as pragmatic as he should have been in his practice as a psychotherapist, he was ultimately a pragmatist. And so was my mother. So that was a huge part of my life. So that appealed to me, you know, laws and (laughs) predictability and right. And like 
controlling variables Control. so that you can impact effective <laughs> change. Like I, I found that to be very appealing to be honest with yeah. you because of the way my dad practiced therapy. I didn't think that that ever would apply to why human beings do the way things that we do. So it wasn't until I started college and I took my first, and I, you know, I went, I was interested in psychology, but I was also, I thought I was going into biology. So that was really what I thought I was going to major in. When I got to Rollins, I was going to be a biologist. I did, I didn't want to go to medical school. That was my sister. She's a physician, but I was interested in biology and I wasn't quite sure what I would do with it. But so, but I was also taking some psychology class. I took a psychology class, obviously my freshman year and and in the intro to psych class at Rollins, every person that was the expert in that area taught the section in intro. So, so yeah. Maria Ruiz, who was my first mentor in the field, she taught the behavior science section. And it luckily, I mean, there's plenty of schools where that's not even a part of intro to psychology. And if it is, it's like yeah. laughed at and scoffed at and, and put brushed under the rug because it's all about cognitive or, or personality or, you know, psychopathology, but our, but Rollins, luckily for me, was was a heavily behavioral psychology department, even at a small private liberal arts college. So she came in and taught the, you know, the first, the second she opened her mouth and was introducing us to to the behavioral yeah. view, I could not believe it. I, I couldn't believe that there was actually a field of science as precise as biology, but with the power to effectively change human behavior in a way that improves the quality of life for all people on the planet. I, I thought I was like, are you nuts? Is this, so immediately, I mean, I immediately knew I was switching from biology yeah. to, to psychology with an emphasis in, you know, behavioral psychology. And like, how many people did that happen for? In that oh, class? so it's so interesting. So Maria Ruiz was known and, and sadly she passed from lung cancer way too soon. I mean, she was young and that was a devastating yeah. thing for not only her precious students, but for the field. Um, and she was a pioneer before her time in so many areas, particularly feminist, you know, bringing, integrating feminist theory with behavioral science um, in a really powerful way. And that was, you know, she was way before her time and, and all of that. I'm a, I'm a member of a small group called Maria's Golden Children. So Maria wow. would all would find, and it wasn't always every class. And this didn't happen in Intro to Psych, actually. Intro to Psych was a humongous class. You know, there was a ton of students. Now I glommed onto her, but I think she still had no idea who I was. It wasn't until I took her right. learning class my sophomore year, I took her learning class and that's when it was a much smaller class. And I was able to really show up and make myself, make her aware of me, <laughs> I will say. Yeah. So, I mean, I put everything into that class. Cause I was like, I am, I, cause I had heard rumors, you know, after I, after I got yeah. experience in Maria with Maria and psychology and intro to psych, I had heard rumors on campus about Maria Ruiz being the hardest, most most difficult professor on campus, but also the most amazing if you become one of her golden children. There was like a rumor, and like she would she would select her her student, and it was either one or two a, a year that would be that she would mentor like graduate students. And so I was I had heard this right. rumor, and I was determined it was going to be me. Yeah. <laughs> So I did everything I needed to in that learning class for that to happen. And I'll never forget the day it did happen. I had, you know, I answered some question in class that she had posed. And I do have to say it was a really good answer. And, <laughs> and she said, 
way uh, I she you know she was so fast you know she didn't she didn't take a lot of time with words but she looked at me and she was like that was an amazing answer see me after class that's all she said to me <laughs> and you're like I'm in and I'm I was in. like I oh, made the I'm in so I stayed after class and the fir- the, the only thing she said to me, oh, the first thing she said to me was I certainly hope you're planning on pursuing graduate training and I was a sophomore in college and I was like. Wow. Uh, well, I was like, well, I would. Yes. And she was like, yeah, I am now. So <laughs> she, we made, you know, she asked me to schedule an appointment in, ha- in her office. And so from that point on, she and I met every, every Friday wow. and I would bring her lunch. She, and what did she have you? Read? Oh my what God. Did she have you I read like everything. I read so much Skinner. Now she, you know, I really didn't start reading Skinner's work in books until graduate school, but I, I, but she would make copies of, of chapters for me. And she was very theoretical. I mean, she ran the rat lab. Um, and we had an actual, we had an actual rat lab at Rollins college. There was no cyber rat. It wasn't virtual. It was like, I literally, we hand shaped rats in opera and chambers. Yeah. So like, that was a mere, that was amazing that she had made that happen at Rollins. I read all, you know, she, so she was experimental and theoretical. That was her, her primary area. And so I read a lot of theoretical papers. I read a lot of basic papers, you know, so much Jack Michael, um, a lot of, you know, just the classics I read, but she was also a feminist. And, um, that was her passion when I came on board as one of her students was she was really working towards moving feminists, the feminist theory to having them understand context and contingencies in shaping verbal behavior and communities and, and, you know, cultural behavior. And so I read a lot of feminist work and I went to some conferences with her that were, you know, women's conferences, women's studies conferences. So, so I read, I just, I read a ton of really graduate level stuff as a college student. And then then what's amazing is she took, we always had a J term at Rollins, which was a term, it was like a month in January. That was like a short semester and you take one course and a lot of times you could travel for a month. And so she took all of us to Los Arcones, which is a, you know, a Walden two based community in Mexico. Oh my, wow. have I never told you this? Does it still uh, exist? Yes. No. yes. Yes. So for those of uh, our listeners not, yeah. that don't understand what Walden two community. Yeah. It's so it's a, you told, you know, BF Skinner wrote a book called Walden two, which was really is a novel. Um, and it's based on this utopian community that's built on behavioral principles. So all positive reinforcement, no punishment, no coercion, and it's all communal. So basically everyone contributes to the greater good. Um, no one role is higher than another role. It's all, it's very socially equal, but what's hilarious is that actually wasn't because when I got there, we noticed a lot of very sexist practices in that community, but that, but whatever, they thought it was equal because they were oblivious, which is what Maria's role was, was to bring the, to light that, you know, actually this isn't equal because the sign above the laundry machines is written with the female gendered pronoun. And even though everyone's supposed right. to have laundry duty in the community, the, you know, all the, all the housekeeping tasks, the things about it were written in, with the gendered female pronoun. So anyway, it was very interesting. So it's a, it was, it's a community that literally lives by behavioral, like lives by Skinnerian principles in every aspect of the community and culture. And it was an amazing experience. And I got to live there for, you know, three weeks um, with her and some others, her golden, some of her other golden students. And Skinner spent a, t- a much of his later life, you know, towards the end of his life, he spent in Los Ocones. And so there was the most amazing po- photographs and, and letters written from 
Skinner to members of the community and they have a whole museum there. What was the size of the community? Oh gosh, you know, not, not very large. I mean, I think there were 40 to 50 people in the community there. So, but it was remarkable. It really was a remarkable experience. Um, and I got, yeah, I got to do that with her. So that was very special. What happened after that? That was my junior year, I think, that I went to Los Colonies. Yeah. So, um, so obviously, I knew this is what I want to do for my career. So, actually, yeah. in my sophomore year, Maria connected me with my second mentor of my life, besides my obviously my mother and people of that sort. But I mean, I mean, academic. And his name is Eb, Eb Elbert. He goes by Eb Blakely. He is a brilliant behavior analyst, and I will tell you right now that. You know, I've learned so much from so many of my mentors, but I still to this day don't think I've ever seen a person that sensitive to context and contingencies with respect to human behavior. So he he ran an organization called Threshold, which was a residential treatment center for children with autism that, uh, you know, other very big people in the field have been involved with. Pat McGreevy did time there as a director. And then, you know, Jose did time there as a director. Um, but I was there before Jose and Pat McGreevy was, was doing some consultation with us towards the end of my tenure there. But yeah, was that your first exposure yes, to the chart? Yes, it was. It was a residential treatment center for people with, with such profound behavior that they, you know, had been in res- full restraint and fully medicated in wow. mental institute, you know, mental health institutions for decades. And so, you know, Ebb's movement in Florida was bringing behavior science into their lives so that they could be unrestrained and off terrible medications of that sort that kept them basically in a catatonic state. So he, we, you know, we worked with the most severe, and these were adults, and so we worked with the most severe people, the most severe behavior problems. Is that the first time you've been exposed to behavior oh, severity? yes. I mean, this was my first foray into yeah. applied behavior analysis at any level. Wow. So Ebb used the standard acceleration chart to measure problem, you know, deceleration targets. Um, not, not, for, yeah. not for acquisition, which is so interesting. When I think about it now, like when I, when the work I did with them in acquisition, we'd use data sheets and I never even saw the graphs. Like the, you know, because I was a low man on the totem pole. So it was the, it was the supervisors yeah. that chart, you know, that graphed all the acquisition targets and had case meetings about that. I just followed the protocols. But I did do the standard acceleration charting because I was a student and I had a full course load. So I didn't, I did the evening shift at threshold. So I, I came in in the evening and then I was involved in like putting the clients to bed. And then I would do all the charting for the whole day of all the behavior targets for the clients that I worked with. Wow. I learned to chart problem behavior when I was very young. I mean, I was a sophomore in college. So this was 90, this was 1993. What's amazing is even as an idiot, you know, I, I had just started doing that. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I, I felt like I had much be- a much better understanding of the impact we were making on problem behavior than I did on what we were teaching them to do in terms of adaptive skills. Um, and it was because we were charting those, those targets. Yeah. And I had the privilege of doing that. Have you ever asked him? Oh, yeah. I mean, we talk, oh, God, char- Ed knows that I've gone way <laughs> deep down the charting path. I mean, I mean, obviously, he's fully respectful of it. You yeah. know, anyone who's, a, anyone who's a brilliant behavior analyst like Ebb, understands the chart and the the issue is so that's an awesome question that is an awesome question because i asked you that when we were offline why if they know do they don't do it well i think that a lot of it is the notion of bringing large institutions on board with that practice 
I think can be very overwhelming and daunting. Even the best behavior analysts, I do think, have a hard time stepping away from that idea that acquisition is different. That acquisition is somehow about accuracy, right? We would never say that a maladaptive behavior should be evaluated with respect to how accurate the child is at what hitting themselves in the head, like, right? Like (laughs) this, that was a real, that was a real accurate face smack. Yeah. They're pretty good at that. Yeah. Any, no behavior analyst would say to ourselves, I'm only concerned about that problem behavior because they're a hundred percent accurate at smacking themselves in the nose. Like if they missed their nose, sometimes I would be less worried. Yeah. We want less accuracy. You know, that's why when you say these things out loud, which is why what you're doing is so important. You know, this podcast is so important because when, when you say these things out loud, like any behavior analyst is going to laugh and say, Oh my God, you're right. Like that's so silly. Like I would never care about accuracy with respect to a problem behavior. I would only care about what rate or frequency, because that's what predicts whether or not that behavior is going to continue to occur and grandly impact that person's functioning in their lives. We would never measure accuracy with reduction targets, but somehow because, you know, and Skinner is not innocent of this. You know, when you think about the teaching machine, when you think about programmed instruction, he designed that to be trials-based really. And, and program, I mean, teaching machines were accuracy. He, he, you know, Skinner himself stopped measuring rate when he started moving into looking at academic skills. And the problem is because of the influence of how education does stuff. It's behavior analysts trying to fit into, fit our model into an education framework. Somehow when you think about teaching kids stuff, all of a sudden education becomes the dominant way of thinking about how to do it. Rather than accelerating behavior is no different than decelerating behavior, and it requires the same science. But all of a sudden, when it comes to accelerating behavior, all of our science goes out the window and we start looking at percent correct and only caring about accuracy, which is really weird because we know that accuracy predicts nothing about problem behavior. On the one hand, you could say it's response effort of trying to teach people to chat, but you know, Og and many others have yeah. taught kids to chat. You've taught kids to yes. chat, right? I've seen you. Yeah have kids chart their own data and their own staff meds, yep. et cetera. So the argument that it's hard to do or hard to learn, is, it doesn't really maintain. Well, and I just also think that's a really silly argument because first and foremost, nothing about behavior science is easy. No one goes into the <laughs> yeah. field of behavior analysis looking for an easy gig. I mean, if you want an easy gig, this is not what you do. Like you don't go into the heart. I mean, I'm going to stand behind this that, our field is the most challenging field of science. And I say that because, for instance, my cousin is a brilliant cancer researcher. I mean, she's a physician and she runs, she's an Emory University professor in the medical school. And she also does, you know, she works in a clinic for children with cancer, but she's a pediatric oncologist, but she's a basic researcher as well. But her research, I'm not saying it's not challenging, but she can control so many conditions because she uses mice. You know, she's a very, she's a basic scientist when it comes to that part. Now the application of it in clinical trials is different, but when you're talking about human behavior, that is an unbelievably complicated subject matter. And so no one goes into human to behavior analysis because we're looking for an easy gig. And so the idea that, oh, charting acquisition targets is, is too hard. That's just a cop out. I mean, give me a break. You know, what's hard is designing contingencies and ignoring horrible tantrums and 
having poop thrown at your head and spit on and your hair pulled out, which all of us have gone through in this field. And so then you're going to tell me that dropping a dot on a blue chart is, is what makes this too hard. That's really a silly excuse, in my opinion. <laughs> so how did you make that big leap? <laughs> yeah. Well, you did. I wonder how many points you have dropped. How many <laughs> oh millions my God. of points do you, you think know, I actually, you have dropped I on a really chart? I really would love to do that analysis. Like, so when I think about it on average, and not even how many drops I've dot, yeah. not not even just how many you know dots I've dropped, but how many charts I've looked at. It, it is millions and millions and millions. It's millions. When I first met you, <laughs> uh, even a few years into when I first met you, you told me you had never ever thrown I out a chart. I hadn't, but I have ever. now. Well, you have scanned them. Yeah. Right? Oh yes. You, oh God. Visit, oh, they're all scanned in. But I mean, you but have I kept, them. Hey, I kept. You have them, but you ran out of room. We had a flood yeah. in the basement at my location in um, Locust Valley, New York, and so um, it was bad. And we were, it was, we were floor to ceiling, boxes and boxes and boxes. I remember going yeah. into that room and just looking at all of those charts and, and thinking, all of this stuff yeah. is in Dr. Kim's head, <laughs> and every day she is, <laughs> she is. Yeah. When I ask her a question and she knows what to do, it's because yes, of it all is. those charts in That's those why. boxes. So luckily yeah. they've all been scanned, which yeah. is not a, that was a very large project. <laughs> but so I, yeah. I, I guess I yeah. could say I still haven't thrown out, I have never intentionally discarded a chart unless yeah. it's been properly yeah. digitally archived. Well, because people love their charts, yes. right? Pretty passionate Well, that's the thing it. that yeah. also yeah. makes me really sad about our field, about the applied aspect of our field. And even in the basic field, there some of the measurement is happening is just bizarre, but and not related to behavior at all. But anyway, in the applied branch, it makes me sad because the greatest privilege I have in my career is the privilege of measuring another human being's behavior in a manner that allows me to make the most powerful impact I can. That that's a privilege I have. You know, the, I have a I have the the unbelievable privilege of being a scientist in my applied work. And and what's amazing is there's very few fields that can say that. Because like for instance, if you're a if you're a pharmacist, sure, you have, you know, a high level of training in biology and chemistry, but you don't get to act like a biologist and a chemist every day. You know, filling a prescription is not necessarily doing biology and chemistry. And the same thing, like my sister, she's a, she's a physician, she's a pediatrician, but, and she was a biochemistry major at Duke university, you know, summa cum laude biochemist, but she doesn't get to act like a biochemist every day. She, she has to, you know, wipe noses and tell parents that, you know, too bad your kid has a virus. I'm not giving them antibiotics, like get over it. They don't need, that's what my sister, you know, so I have the profound privilege that in my work, I get to do both. I get to be a scientist in my work with human beings. And that is that is a yeah. rare and, gift. But not only do you do that when you're actually in the chair, which right now you're in the chair yeah, a lot with your kids. But this, yeah, this, still doing it. this morning I sent you a bunch of charts from a kid that you have never laid eyes on. Yes. You were able to look at the rate of stutter that he's making in his programs and advise yeah. me on next steps just from looking at a yeah. few charts. And you've never seen this kid, but you know from looking at that chart a lot about that that beautiful sure little do. kid. And this is a profound thing because if I send you a percent correct yeah. graph, I'm pretty sure you couldn't make any decisions no based way. on, no on way. that. Again, the accuracy of stuttering, that's, that is an unbelievably irrelevant measure. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and here's another thing I will say, and that's you're making the point so well, is that in any field of science, the, the, the most important aspect of that field is powerful communication between scientists. Because otherwise, discoveries aren't made. Like, you know, we are all living through the worst pandemic in 100 years. And the only reason we're, we've made any headway is because a group of scientists have been working together on an, MR, you know, an mRNA vaccine technology for more than 30 years. You know, scientists in, in California have been interacting with scientists in Asia and in Berlin and in, in, in Germany, and, and they've been speaking the same scientific language so that every step forward they make can, you know, contributes to the next step forward because they're not confused by what their data is telling them. But our field is stuck. And, and I hate, hate to say this, but, you know, the only field, only aspect of, uh, you know, I would say that one of the applied areas that isn't stuck is people who do precision teaching. Like, we're not stuck. Like, the discoveries that we make every single day at Fit Learning are, are, are profound. And uh, unfortunately, that's not happening in a lot of other areas of applied behavior analysis because no one's using science, number one, and no one's using a, a language of science that allows people to make, to share discoveries in a powerful way so that they can propel the field forward. And that's the only way to do that. And so, the, and, and in science, our language is our, how we measure our phenomenon, period. Our, just our, our, our verbal descriptions of our findings are not what the language of our science is. The language of our science is our measurement system. Okay, so I need you to make a couple of jumps back and then forward because, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, what Og would think of what's occurring mm. in behavior analysis today, but even back when he was still alive, but I need to get you to that jump to when you came in contact with Oz. Right. That's one of my favorite stories <laughs> on the planet ever. Yes. <laughs> and I know it's been taught yeah, in a lot of different yes. forums, but maybe if you can touch it. I will. It I'll do it quick. Or think I'll problem solve it. When I came to UNR, when I went to UNR, I don't know why I said came, when I went to UNR to pursue my doctoral degree, I was really recruited out there to run the autism program with Pat Gezi. I had moved to working with children with autism, Ed Blakely and, and myself and two other of Maria's golden children started a preschool for children with autism in Florida. And so I had done that. And so anyway, so I had started working with kids in, the, in autism. And so I was recruited to UNR really to run the autism program. But again, you know, it, it was Sid Bijou was there and Pat Gezi. And it was like, look, it, I'm not saying it wasn't an amazing program, but there was no charting and it was all percent correct. It was all Excel graphs and it was all standing up with, and we, this is the overhead projector days where we had like oh, mylars, yeah. right? We were like putting mylars on the overheads and showing our Excel graphs. And, and I was just profoundly frustrated because I knew that I was, they were so like, I wasn't making progress with a lot of my kids because I couldn't see what was happening with their behavior because I wasn't actually measuring behavior. I was measuring not behavior. I mean, percent correct is not a measure of behavior. I guess we have to say that yeah. as many times as we can. It's, it's actually embarrassing that that has to be stated that way. It, percent correct is not a measure of behavior. And so if you're doing behavior analysis, you better be measuring behavior or you're not actually doing behavior and analysis. The, the major journals um, in our field, that's exactly what they do. Of course. Yeah. It's just shocking. So anyway, I was doing that and I was just feeling more and more frustrated. And luckily when I came to UNR, I'd met a couple other graduate students who were also very obsessed with charting and precision teaching because they had been in, they had seen Carl Binder present and anyone who sees Carl Binder present changes your life forever. We all volunteered and started this like precision teaching math program in a closet um, <laughs> at UNR for free. Like we were just volunteering and working with like faculty, like Steve Hayes's kids and, you know, Steve and Linda's kids were in there and 
just random kids from the faculty. So that's kind of how I started moving away from, from traditional ABA work, uh, was just volunteering with these other grad students. So anyway, you know, long story short, I left the autism world and I, and I devoted my time exclusively to the precision teaching project that we were trying to build at UNR. You know, lucky for me, the precision teaching community is unbelievable in the sense that they embrace you. And because I had no one at UNR doing precision teaching besides the two, the graduates, like the three of us, me and Christine Kim and Brian Gaunt, the three of us were doing it and no one was doing it. And so, and then Christine and Brian actually left because they went to get their doctoral degrees elsewhere because they were master's students. So I was just by myself and Nick was kind of dabbling in it, but Nick was all doing RFT with Steve Hayes at that time was what he was focusing on. So anyway, Luckily, Carl Binder and Elizabeth Houghton and Kent Johnson and John Eshelman and Rick Hubina, all of these amazing, the great, they brought me under their wing and started really giving me a lot of mentorship, but I never really had a lot of interaction. And were you with reaching Oz. out and asking questions? Is that how you got in contact with all of them? Oh, yes. Help. Carl Binder, you know, he was very much my, the first for me because he had a lot of interaction with UNR. Like he was teaching some summer classes at UNR. Like he came to UNR a lot. So I just had a lot of interaction with him on campus, which was great. Anyway, so long story short, I was presenting some, some work, um, a conference in, I think we were in New Orleans and I was trying to use fluency-based instruction, but I wasn't using the chart because I had been doing this work with Pat, Desi, my was my master's thesis. I think it was. Anyway, long story short, Og Lindsley's in my, in the <laughs> audience and he stands up and proceeds to destroy <laughs> my graphs. And it was, it was standing room only because I was doing fluency based work with kids with autism at a conference at, at yeah. ABA conference. So you can imagine it was literally like 300 people in the wow. room and Og <laughs> just did his thing what was for those of us that didn't meet Og what was his what was his thing (laughs) oh god well Og I will tell you could be the most wonderful hilarious warm charming man and then he could also be scathingly mean in his defense because he was so I mean imagine his experience you know what I mean like he literally puts in the hands of our science a tool that is allows people to do what Skinner did in applied settings and no one uses it and like blackballs him. And you know what I'm saying? Like imagine how just unbelievably furious Og was. And he was, he was, that's this perfect word. Og was furious. When you say he was blackballed, how did that occur? So, you know, this is, I'm not a primary source. On, I mean, I guess I am a little bit of a primary source on this because Og did talk to me about this a little bit. So here's what I will say. So when, and this is something that's really not talked about very often because I think people are afraid to talk about it because it's so political, um, but I don't care. <laughs> I really, I'm not well, one of those people that cares. Say. Don't care. So, so when my behavior analysis was evolving, to be honest with you, it first evolved with Og, which he never, I mean, we give him credit for that. But, but no one, none of the majors in our field give Og, Og Lindley credit for that. Like when you think of the father of behavior analysis, well, I, who do you think? Well, most people think B.F. Skinner. No, no, no. I'm saying the father oh, yeah. of applied behavior analysis would yes. be Don Baer. I mean, most people say yes. Don Baer, right? Or they'll say Mark yes. Wolf or they'll say Sid Bijou. They'll say yep. one of those yep. guys, right? But what I'll tell you is though, they were after Og, number one. Not, I mean, not Sid. I mean, Sid was doing work in human development forever. But I'm saying when he started doing behavior modification yeah. work. 
so Og was the first to bring behavioral science out of the laboratory and start work, start applying it to human populations, mainly people, you know, schizophrenics. And, you know, he did some work with vegetative people and catatonic states. And anyway, so he's the, you know, Og Lindsay is the father of behavior yeah. therapy, which is the premise behind the applied behavior analysis. So when, when I was doing that work with, with Skinner, by the way, as Skinner's student, and they were really working on the measurement system of it and trying to devise something that mimicked the cumulative yeah. record, which is where the chart comes from, um, you know, that, that was all happening. That was happening. So what I'm trying to say is, you know, Og Lindsley was trained as a, as a basic scientist. He was trained as an experimental behavior scientist. And then he brought that experimental training into the laboratory. And, but the primary thing wasn't the principles, right? I mean, sure. Obviously like reinforcement, duh, you know, like it wasn't like, like Og didn't think, yeah, we got to use reinforcement in this situation with these hallucinating, you know, hallucinating schizophrenics and evaluate the role of contingencies on their hallucinations. Sure. But the most important thing for Og because of Skinner was bringing the science into the applied setting. So Og was bringing the, the science out of the basic lab and into the applied world. And so that meant the first and foremost was how was measuring behavior. Because first, that's, that was first and foremost in Skinner's lab. So in Skinner's lab, nothing mattered except for how the behavior was measured, right? Like it was all about ba- rates of responding. And so... And then once they got rates of responding, they could manipulate it, you know, any number of variables and evaluate their impact, but you had to get rates. And that was how they measured everything was rate. And so of course that's all Og thought about. So when Og brought this into the basic, into the applied world, his first thought wasn't about, oh, how can I, how can I do, how can I use reinforcement? It was about how can I measure behavior without it being in a, in, without this person being in an operant chamber? Cause that to him was the most important thing. Cause Og was a scientist. First and foremost. So, so that's what happened. Now, what I will tell you is the other people who are considered to be founders of, of applied behavior analysis had very different training. They were not trained as basic scientists at all. They came from fields of human development, education, traditional psychology. So I will tell you that. So that, you know, when you think about Ivar Lovas and the guys who coined behavior modification. Like, think about what behavior modification was. Like, behavior modification was a technology, if you will, which I even don't even want to use that term, actually. Behavior modification was the application of the principles discovered in the basic laboratory, but it was not, it it, it was in no way a science. None. I mean, behavior modification was use reinforcement contingently to build skills, but that's very different than doing behavioral science in an applied setting. And so Og was, was developing an applied, was a, developing applied behavior science where he was, he was developing a, a, a science, he was developing a, me- a manner in which behavior science could be conducted in an applied setting with human populations. Whereas the other guys, we're doing, we're applying the principles to human problems. Those are two very different things. And unfortunately, applying the principles to human problems got a lot more press, got a lot more attention, got a lot more support from 
Because think about the people who were really coming in and taking over the field. They were from the establishments. Like, let's be all honest. Like Skinner was an anti-establishment person because he was actually taking on all the establishments, right? Like Skinner was taking on the medical establishment and the traditional psychological establishment and the educational establishment. Like he was taking on all, I mean, all think of all of Skinner's books. They're all, they're all calling into question all of our cultural practices and beliefs. So, so Skinner was an anti-establishment person, right? And that was who, that was Og's mentor. But now, but think about the guys who, who popularized behavior modification. They were actually members of those establishments. So the guys who popularized behavior B mod were traditional psychologists, traditional educators, human, you know, human development people. Now I'm not saying that they did not, uh, not, you know, look, I'm not trying to not give any credit to say that, look, they saw the utility of the behavioral, like of of the pragmatic approach. They saw the utility of, of behavior, you know, behavior science, but sadly they missed the boat on the science part of it. And that's what happened. And so as these big establishment guys with way more power than Og did, had took over the mm-hmm. field, you know, Og got, got um, marginalized yeah. in a massive way. And he had a very, I mean, obviously Og had a very significant following of people who really got it and understood it. Like, you know, he had B. Barrett and I mean, all the greats, you know, like all the all the greats who were yeah, with him on can this. Can you name those for, for our listeners, Dr. Kim, the people that really ran with the chart? And- well, I mean, I would say B. Barrett. B. Barrett was the primary one in addition to, you know, to Og Lindsley yeah. back at that time. But, God, you're making, I don't know if I can recall all these human beings, but, I mean, you know, they're, well, yeah. Eric Cotton, by the way. I mean, we had Eric Cotton. We had Carl, Co- you know, Koenig. We had... You know, there were some, there were some significant, and they were all basic scientists. Like B. Barrett was a Skinnerian, she was in Skinner's lab too. So B. Barrett, who, by the way, no one talks about enough. Um, you know, Carl, Carl Binder is the person who, who reminds us all about B more than any, and I would say Kent Johnson as well, you know, about B's role in all of this. Um, because sadly she again died tragically too young. Um, but you know, all of these people who were it, on this quest with Og were trained as scientists, and, and that's the pro, that is the difference is that they weren't they were not establishment people glomming on to principles. They were basic behavioral scientists developing a technology for using behavior science in applied settings and making discoveries in applied settings, like Skinner made and all of them made in the basic setting. So, what was you know, where was Og at when he passed away in terms of the future of precision teaching? Did he, did he, did he hold out hope? Yes. Uh, sadly, uh, Og had become extremely cynical yeah. in his late, later life because he'd received so much yeah. punishment. You know, a lot of his work was under contingencies of punishment in our field. And so um, he, you know, that's why he largely stopped writing and publishing in in the big behavior journals, um, you know, he, he really had kind of left, he had really kind of moved off of trying to convince people anymore of, of what they're doing wrong. <laughs> I, I would say, but I mean, I, I do know that Og experienced immense frustration and sadness and fury about this, but I will also say he was hopeful because, you know, young people were coming up in this and were 
extremely passionate about it. You know, like myself and Christine Walton and, you know, all the, the three of us at UNR, you know, I think we, you know, Og was very proud of that. And, you know, Og did, I, Og never got to see fit learning happen and he never, you know, he, but I will say one of the last conversations I had with Og before he got, he stopped being able to attend conferences because he was sick. I had a conversation with him in a bar at ABAI. I told him about how I felt that these mom and pop precision teaching centers, although, you know, the, the backbone of precision teaching, um, I said, you know, if, if we continue on with mom and pop shops, we're never going to gain the kind of traction in the mainstream public that we need to really move this field forward, despite of what ABA does. Um, and so I, that's when I first talked to him about the franchising of what, we, what was at that point Cal, Center for Advanced Learning, like either try to franchise Cal or do something of that sort to so that it was a household name and there was a, a precision teaching a high level precision teaching center in like every, every major city I, that thrilled him. Like he was very giddy about that. And he loved the, you know, he, he was totally on board with the idea of a major, you know, major precision teaching conglomerate unified brand that not only could be the, the, you know, produce the visibility needed to bring the public's awareness around this, but just the, unbelievable amount of behavior science that would happen and the unbelievable amount of data that could be collectively produced and analyzed and understood. Um, So I think, you know, I will say, I think I would be thrilled at what's happened in precision teaching. You know, I got to tell you, you know, Rick Cubina and Dave Stevens work with Chartlytics, like that's now Central Reach is a huge ABA provider. And the chart is built into that platform. And although it's, you know, really mainly usable by people in the autism world, still, that's a huge contribution to behavior analysis. And I think Og would be over the moon about that. And I mean, fit learning, like we have, you know, almost 40 locations around the world, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids go through fit every year. And we collect, you know, millions of data, millions of data points, millions of of data points are charted a year um, just through fit alone. And the discoveries that we've made about rapidly accelerating all kinds of complex human behavior. It's just, I think he'd be thrilled. And as technology, as a technology improves and your ability to mine that data improves, do you think the science will get even more precise? You know, I do. Like one thing I will say is obviously when you're in the applied world and you're hand counting behavior, which by the way, I I obviously I'm obsessed with that. Like I'm obsessed with hand counting. Like I, you know, I, I have, I have a phantom, I have phantom <laughs> thumb flicks yeah. because I'm so used to counting behavior. Like I, when I think about the number of behaviors I've counted in my career, but like, I, you know, I'm always, it's like, I have a golf counter in my hand, even when yeah. I don't. And when I see something happening, I want to count my thumb just kind of phantomly starts clicking, but I love hand counting behavior. Don't get me wrong, but I will say, and this is something, you know, we've been really trying to move forward at fit for a long time and is now with the with artificial intelligence and the automation of of so much you know that is a huge area that needs to be developed because i have to say hand training teachers to hand count and hand chart behavior is an unrealistic um vision for the future of of precision teaching and the future of behavior science i mean it's just not possible to to train every teacher on the planet 
to do this. Yeah, that is one of your great passions, isn't it? It is one of my great passions, but I will say that I, I firmly believe that we are, I mean, we are very close to a technological solution for that. That could be implemented in every school Sorry. around the globe um, it, it very easily and have it be automated. And with the amount of autom- automated data that could be garnered, not only on in a res- like for instance, we can never look at IRTs because you can't count, you can't measure IRTs as a human counter. But IRTs are, uh, you know, are something that are that provide a lot of unbelievable information about the acquis- you know, the acceleration or deceleration of a behavior, or what's preventing acceleration is in the IRTs. So I think that with an automated measurement platform that can actually let us look at IRTs in that way. Also look at, you know, error rates with specific, there's so many, this, the analyses that could be done of, uh, of learning yeah. pictures when it's an automated platform, when, you know, like an operant chamber, you know, it's a computerized digital precision teaching experience. Um, I think our, uh, it blows my mind and really excites me. Something I, I know that we're on a mission towards you know, not that I ever don't want to have human beings working with children. And that's what the labs are for. You know, to be honest with you, our learning, our locations all around the world, fit learning locations are learning laboratories because that's where we do the really elegant science around, you know, instructional design and, you know, how to more rapidly accelerate all kinds of complex behavior. Like that work happens in the laboratory that, that I do believe requires human and to human Context, but I think that it's that learning laboratory work that, that can then lead to the instructional design of a of a digital platform that increases access for every wow, learner on the planet. Exciting. I know you don't have a lot of time, but I just want to get you to jump back and just let Og yeah. off the hook a bit here because. Uh, oh right, because uh, <laughs> I forgot to tell the story. Wait a second, I forgot to finish the story. Humiliated you publicly. Uh, something profound happened for you, didn't it? In a bathroom. Yes, yes, yes. So they were at the airport leaving the leaving the conference, and um, our flights like delayed four or five hours. I can't remember; it was terrible. We had a and Nick and I, my husband Nick, we had a little baby. We had Emma; she was a baby. So we're hanging out in the waiting room of the airport, and there comes Og, and he's on our flight. Oh my god! And so I immediately look at Nick, and I go, "I'll be waiting in the bathroom for the rest <laughs> of this until the flight leaves." So I go in the bathroom, and I'm like in the stall, hiding, like literally hiding. And then Nick kind of sticks, which is so brave of Nick because it was like a public female bathroom in an airport. So he's, you can, I can hear him yelling through the door, you know, this is Kimberly, this is your moment. You can either hide in the bathroom or you can get out of the bathroom Literally get out and of the go bathroom. talk to him. Go talk to Dr. Lindsley. Go talk to Dr. Lindsley. And so I was like, you know, stop trying to be coaching and create a breakthrough jerk. You know, I was mad. But then I actually did get it. I was like, yeah, he's so, of course, Nick's always right. So he's right. So I got out of the bathroom and I walked up to him and I said, Dr. Lindsay, I don't know if you remember me. And I don't even get through the sentence. He's like, well, of course I remember you. <laughs> oh, oh in, his, um, in his love, in his amazing cranky way, which was just so adorable, really. Anyway, so then he, you know, I said, I really would love, you know, we have a long waiting period. Would you mind talking to me about what, what made you so angry with respect to my presentation? And so he did. And for four or five hours, I don't remember how long that flight was late. He taught, he taught me about science and mathematics and visual, you know, visual representations of scientific phenomenon and what 
what the chart, why the chart is designed the way it is and all the ways you can use it and what's wrong with applied behavior analysis and how behavior is being measured and what's wrong with percent correct and what's wrong with statistics and what's wrong with, you know, the law of averages and what's wrong with, I, I mean, you know, and, he, and what's amazing is Og always came packing in his briefcase, you know, God knows how many charts he ever had in there. So he, you know, I had some of my charts and he had his charts and they were spread. The people in the waiting room thought we were nuts because they were like, you know, standard acceleration charts spread across the floor of of the waiting area in the airport. You know, we must have 30 charts spread across the floor. And we were walking around and he was showing me different learning pictures and different types, you know, bounce, you know, ways of looking at bounce and ways of looking at, uh, you know, level and acceleration. Anyway, so it was, uh, it was literally, you know, there's a, there's a handful of experiences I've had in my life that changed the course of my life. Like, you know, Maria's intro yeah. to psych class. And the first, the first day I worked with Ed Blakely at Threshold and got to watch him do a functional analysis. And I'll tell you right now, Ed Blakely has never and will never run a, an analog functional analysis. That guy does contextual analyses and is brilliant at it. And so that's how I, you know, learned to discover behavior function in the context in which behavior is occurring. I learned that from Ed. So that was a life-changing day for me. And then the day that Og yelled at you publicly. <laughs> well, that, yes. But more importantly, the airport <laughs> yeah. experience after. And it, cha- it really did change my life forever because I walked out of that airport and I never, I, I have never, not once ever measured behavior without charting it. Yeah. Never once. Not once. I have never in my career since that day with him, I, never have I not measured behavior using a standard acceleration chart. Ever. I've never measured it in any other way. So the state of play of ABA is what this yeah. uh, podcast episode is called. Uh, you just gave a lot of reasons as yeah. to why the state of play is. Well, and it makes me really sad because, you know, I wrote my book, Blind Spots, Why Students Fail on the Science I Can Save Them. When I, when I wrote that book, you know, that book is about the, the ideology of the educational establishment and why education has always been and will continue to be profoundly ineffective for a majority of kids because the belief system of that establishment all but guarantees the failure of students. And and no amount of evidence will will shift people's opinions of that because they're ideological ones and they're not based in pragmatism or like what works. And that's why for a century, education hasn't worked. And what really breaks my heart is that that's exactly what's happened to our applied branch of our field. If you talk to people who are trained in traditional ABA, it is all ideological. It's all ideological. They, they, all, they, they graph things the way they graph things because that's what they were, how they were told to graph it. And that's what their mentor told them to do. You know, they use data sheets and they use percent correct. And they use these things because that's just what they've always done. That's the tradition. And because they believe that's the way they should do it because that's what they were told. Rather than evaluating, does it work? Am I actually making a significant impact with my learners? And do I even know what a significant impact is? And I promise you, no, they don't. Because when you're not measuring behavior in a standardized way, you actually have no way of, of knowing what, a, what significant behavior change is. You know, Rather than stepping back from yourself and letting go of your belief system and looking at the world scientifically and saying to yourself, do I feel like I'm making as big of an impact as I can? Am I missing anything? Is something not working? Can I do something better? What can I change to improve my practice? 
rather than stepping back and saying those things, what happens is it's dogmatism and self-righteousness and excuse making and also ignoring the evidence. And that's what ideologues do. And so now we have a branch of our field that are that is as ideological and ineffective as a, as traditional education and traditional and actually traditional psychology to be honest with you which is instantiated ineffective practices for centuries and our field is going down that same path and it's heartbreaking so to those behavior analysts that that might ring a bell for you know, mm-hmm. what's your advice to them? I would, I would ask what your goals are. I, I think that the, I would, I, that's why pragmatism works so well for me because in pragmatism, it allows you to let go of self-righteousness and dogmatism and defending your beliefs because pragmatism is fundamentally about, fundamentally about effective action and accomplishing your goals. And so if you really step back and ask yourself, honestly, what are my goals? Are my goals to be right about using percent correct? Are my goals to be right about using stretch to fill graphs? Or are my goals to produce the most powerful behavior change I can so that I can most profoundly improve this person's life? And if your goals are the latter, then actually it's quite easy to say, okay, am I, how am I doing in accomplishing those goals? And if I don't feel so great about that, is there something I can do differently that might make me accomplish my goals in a more powerful way? If you have the ability to do that, then that's the access is looking at like, what are my goals and how am I doing? And that's what science gives you. And that's what pragmatism, science gives you the ability to not be dogmatic and self-righteous. You know, that science is inherently humble and skeptical and never, never satisfied, right? Like we've never done enough. We, we've never discovered enough. We don't really actually know the whole answer. We don't know what's possible. We don't know if it could be better. Like that, that's inherent skepticism is the whole premise behind science and the continued evolution of scientific discoveries. It's dogmatism that is the death of that. And dogmatism doesn't come from science. It comes from ideology. It comes from religion, to be quite honest. It comes from belief. So if you're engaging in a dogmatic way of being, that's a red flag because that means you're being run by a belief system rather than a pragmatic one. Yeah. And so there's a few things I want to ask you, and I know we're running out of time, but... Um, yeah, that's okay. We have 11 minutes, 10 uh, minutes for my first session of the day. <laughs> I think I... Uh, are you happy to comment on the state of the BACB at the moment? They're, mm-hmm. uh, they no longer have uh, precision teaching or the chart in their curriculum. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to call. I mean, again, when I talk about being pragmatic and goal-oriented, I, I mean that across the board in my life. And caring about what people think about my, you know, and caring about politics is actually in complete contradiction of that. So I am not around here to make people, to placate people or play political games. I'm here to actually try to change people's lives through behavior science. I'm also a BCBA, but if 
you know, one of the major recognised uh, qualifications in our field is not teaching those things that you've just spoken about. Right. What What is the hope going forward in terms of people that are being trained and released into working with kids with severe and challenging behaviour? Yeah. I mean, I have to say, and this, this is the exact same thing. And again, I can't even, I can't emphasize enough the parallels between traditional education and applied behavior analysis. So the professionalization of, of teaching became a, a thing that started happening really back in the, in the turn of the, probably in the early 1900s, I would say. So, you know, professional schools started showing up and teachers started becoming, you know, credentialed. But again, you know, that was for two reasons. One, before that time, it was actually like the, the, the most uneducated people in the, who couldn't get any other kind of job were actually the ones that became teachers, So, which is interesting. So it was actually like a really low-level, almost like ridiculed profession particularly because it was all men at first and it was men who weren't strong enough to work in factories or be business people, or, you know, they didn't come from money. They didn't have family money. So it was actually a really um, low level considered low level job. So the professionalization of the field was intended to have it, give it credibility with the public. So that was the first goal of professionalization for teachers. And, and then the second goal was, you know, the, the lip service to um, ensuring that people were actually trained to do to be good teachers, and to be quite honest, neither of those things were accomplished through professionalization because people still teachers are still profoundly disrespected, and they're disrespected because they're not well trained and they don't. And our educational system produces horribly mediocre at best outcomes. So, credentialing teachers has not improved outcomes, and credentialing teachers has not improved people's views of teachers. And the and the and both things are are happening in the field of professional, of, you know, on the professionalization of behavior analysis. So the field is not more respected. To be honest with you, it's actually it, the the opposite is happening. You know, every other day I see something on social media about how the abusive, ineffective, um, unethical, you know, horrifying practices that happen in behavior analysis. And look, some of those might some of that may be incorrect, but some of it is probably also a bit correct. And also the professionalization of, of behavioralists has absolutely not improved outcomes with clients. Training a behavior analysis has nothing, becoming certified in behavior analysis has actually nothing to do with whether or not you are effective at producing behavior change. It's not built into your training and it's not, you're not evaluated in that way. That's not, you know, you're not, you don't get your credential in behavior analysis because you are a profoundly powerful behavior changer. You're a credential because you've, checked a bunch of boxes and done a bunch of hours of whatever kinds of, I don't know what you're supervised to do, but even in that inside of that supervised, supervised hours, you could have been profoundly ineffective at what you did. And a lot of people are because I've watched it. I've seen it happen. So the professionalization of our field is not improving our, the credibility of our field. And it's, it's not producing the more ex, you know, higher levels of competency in the people becoming credentialed. So what's the point of it? Is my question. So I actually am no law. I was one of the first applied, you know, certified behavior analysts in Florida. I got my, you know, I got that credential years and years ago, and it was just a Florida credential. And I've been a, you know, certified behavior analyst for two decades. And I, I was a licensed behavior analyst in the state of New York. I'm neither. I'm neither of those. I've let both of those lapse 
because I, I have, I see no resemblance to my science and what happens in applied behavior analysis, zero resemblance, nothing that I see resembles it when there's not a single, let alone, there's no standard acceleration chart, but let alone a graph on the exam. So people have to engage in data analysis of any sort. There's no analysis of behavior happening. It's the same exact thing that happened in education with teachers. It's vignettes. It's ridiculous ethical questions. It has nothing to do with the science of behavior now of, of behavior. It has nothing to do with doing science in an applied setting. And it's devastating. And it's it, it, there needs to be a real wake-up call because you know, I, I know I, I know how people are saying, oh, it's just you know, behavior analysis is misunderstood. That's why there are all these allegations all over the media. No, there's allegations all over the media because there's a lot of horrifyingly ineffective practices being conducted out there in behavior analysis. And it needs to be acknowledged. So what is the hope? What's the future? Well, and here's what I will say. Um, you know, I'm, I'm circumventing this whole thing because to be honest with you, another really devastating thing to me is that ABA is all about autism now. You know, rather than it being about the application of behavior science to human problems, ABA is about the application of behavior, behavior modification for children with autism. That's what applied behavior analysis is now. And, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know if we can save that. So my, my point is, you know, not, I'm not trying to shift ABA anymore. ABA is, a, you know, that's why I left the field, to be quite honest. You know, I think that's a train that's barreling out of control down a path that I can't help. But what I can do is what I am doing, which is educate the mainstream public about the power of our science to change behavior in profound ways. Um, and for me, that, that's academic behavior and complex cognitive repertoires. But, you know, the parallels are to anything are obvious. So I, I actually am, you know, I, I'm not, I really don't even associate myself with ABA at all. I mean, I don't talk about ABA. I never say behavior analysis. I say behavior science. I, I, wrote, I wrote a popular press book. I write popular press op-eds all the time. I'm in a very big documentary film that's coming out by an Emory award-winning director on the reading, on the illiteracy epidemic. I mean, to be honest with you, ABA is its own train wreck and I can't help them because they won't help themselves. People who are in it can help themselves by changing their practices and starting to do science instead of behavior modification and measuring behavior. But I, I'm I'm doing I'm going a different path. I, you know, it's a bigger game. It's 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 the mainstream public and it's it's educating parents and educators and policymakers and you know on the power of our science to affect change in profoundly important areas of human life. And what ABA does is what ABA does, in my opinion. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah, I had the best time. Love you so much, Dr. Kim. Thanks so much, Dr. Kimberly Behrens, for joining me early on in this new podcast. I'm hoping she'll come back and talk more about her optimism for introducing technology to classrooms for measuring student performance. You can find details of her work at www.drkimberlybehrens.com, including her interviews and podcasts, and of course, her first book, Blind Spots, Why Students Fail and the Science That Can Save Them. In episode four, I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Dr. John Eshelman to the podcast. I'm still coming to terms with John's summary curriculum vitae. His accomplishments are truly remarkable. His knowledge of ABA and precision teaching is something that I'm extremely honoured to be able to discuss on this podcast. 
In particular, he will talk about the explosion of behaviour analysts and how Ogden Lisley's desire for the use of the standard acceleration chart is even more relevant today with more than 100,000 professionals in the US with some form of behaviour analytics certification and the issue of quality control becoming a huge issue for our field. He'll also comment on the criticisms being launched to ABA and his views on how to address those. Incredibly, John spent time in 2001 only a few miles from my front door in a precision teaching project here in Perth. If you care about the state of ABA and how to address the challenges our field is facing today, don't miss John in episode four. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ABA and PT podcast. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast in the platform you are listening to this episode on. And if you'd like to be part of our community, check out our Instagram and Facebook page, the ABA and PT podcast, where we post regularly about precision teaching and applied behavior analysis. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ABA and PT podcast. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast in the platform you are listening to this episode on. And if you'd like to be part of our community, check out our Instagram and Facebook page, the ABA and PT podcast, where we post regularly about precision teaching and ABA topics. And if you'd like to interact with like-minded people that are looking to learn more about PT, you can also join our ABA and PT podcast Facebook group. You can find all these in the show notes of this episode.